BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Trump has doxxed a second figure in his New York fraud trial. And I start here because the nightmare in Gaza is actually just the story of the Trump delusion, only writ larger and only for the fact that Gaza is a few decades later in the narrative. I will get to Gaza presently. The Midas Touch people, I believe it was, who caught this first. Monday night, Trump reposted a Substack piece by the appalling Laura Loomer, which, with typical imbecility, asserts Trump can't be wrong because New York Attorney General Letitia James allegedly had unauthorized or hazardous restorations done at a residence here in New York City. And, of course, Loomer reproduced a city document that supposedly supports that claim. And she just happened to not blank out the street address for what may be the attorney general's home. And Trump just happened to repost that piece and repost that address. And, oh, look, Judge Arthur Angeron didn't specifically gag Trump and forbid him from posting anything about Letitia James or himself, the judge or anybody else, just about members of the judge's courtroom staff. After Trump had posted an innocuous selfie that the court clerk had taken with Chuck Schumer, and Trump insisted that made her Schumer's girlfriend, and thus Schumer was running the case, and thus it had to be dismissed immediately, and then, of course, Trump also attacked Engeron. And just when Judge Engeron should be broadening the gag order on Trump in the New York fraud case, it turns out to be too woefully narrow to protect the attorney general against doxing. 
And now it looks like another judge and another gag order are falling into the same trap. To little fanfare, Judge Chutkin released the written version of her Trump gag order, and it barely limps onto a third page, and it is unspecific, and in particular, it emphasizes only what Trump can do, like Trump can attack Mike Pence, Trump can insist this is political persecution, and Trump can insist he's not going to be able to get a fair trial in Washington. Not once does it make any references to the sanctions the judge warned him against when she issued her gag order against him in court on Monday afternoon. We are left to guess if she would fine him or fine him for the first couple of offenses and then move on to permanently or temporarily revoking his bail and putting him behind bars, or if she jumped to that bail revocation first, or if she has some other idea, or if somehow she is not even seriously considering doing to him what would be done to any other defendant who had attacked every principal in a case and just in case he might miss somebody had threatened, well, the entire universe with, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Neither Judge Chutkin nor Judge Engeron seems to be a shrinking violet, and I hope I am not impugning either of them because I am confident they think they are just bending over backwards to respect the office of President of the United States, even if this creature who once held it is provably and objectively dedicated to the overthrow of the courts and of representative government in this nation. But both Judge Chutkin and Judge Engeron are on the cusp of becoming the worst thing I can think to call someone in these years of our democracy's existential crisis. They are both on the cusp of becoming judicial versions of Chuck Todd. I state this so often it exhausts me, and yet I wonder if somehow I have not stated it often enough. Trump's only true genius is his ability to find the line. Whatever it is, wherever it is, whatever it's about, he can find the line and dance right along the line so that whoever would act against him self-edits, self-doubts, self-hesitates, self-delays, self-overthinks, self-both-sides-it. Trump's guilt is truly greater than the sum of his crimes. In doxing Letitia James, he has not defied Engeron's gag order. In this machine gun spray of threats in the insurrection case, he has not defied Chutkin's gag order, not yet anyway. And Chutkin suddenly seems hesitant to even tell him or us what the penalty will be when he does. And yet, cumulatively, is there any question Trump has violated what each judge has told him to do and not to do? Is there any need to ever tell a sane man to not try to whip up public hatred against the prosecutors or the judges or the witnesses solely to somehow get that public to interfere with that prosecution? Is there any doubt that Trump is threatening and attacking these figures of the legal establishment solely for the inevitable day when they act violently or he summons them explicitly to act violently in order to stop his prosecution? Is there any question that the outcome Trump wants in each of these cases is another January 6th, only with Jack Smith or Letitia James or somebody else as the sole victims of the respective mobs? We are running out of time 
for the judges to continue to bend over backwards. They should be, in fact, bending in the opposite direction. And if you begin to think we cannot exceed the law or the Constitution and still preserve both, firstly, each is done every day by conservative judges and conservative governors and conservative police. Secondly, this nation still exists because in the grimmest and grandest of forms, President Lincoln exceeded the law and the Constitution to preserve both. The nation survived and the Constitution survived. And if we do not test the elasticity of both in some small ways right now regarding Trump, we will, as we did in 1861, find those among us who are willing to test its elasticity on Trump's behalf at the point of a knife and the barrel of a gun. And no, I am not asking Judge Chutkin to suspend habeas corpus and lock Trump away this afternoon without charge or bail. Delightful a prospect as that might be. But I now think our survival as a nation with a representative government may depend on some imaginative and creative interpretations of extant law by that judge or by Engron in New York to broaden what their gag order applies to. One of them, presumably Chutkin, should suggest that the federal insurrection trial can only proceed fairly and safely if Trump is prohibited from any attacks on any legal institutions in this country and the principles in any case being conducted against him. Under a proactive and justifiable gag order, Trump would be, before Judge Chutkin today, for having doxed Attorney General James two nights ago in New York. Because otherwise, if you let him commit crimes 26 through 50 in the jurisdiction where there are only crimes 1 through 25, he will. It is how he has survived until this age without having already been sent to prison. It is his only true skill. And because of what else happened yesterday, I today have significantly less faith that this nation will do what is necessary to stop Donald Trump before it is too late. Because the other thing that happened yesterday underscores how far delusion and denial have overtaken 21st century mankind. Because the Gaza Strip and our Mar-a-Lago of the mind are closer than they might at first appear. It is an extraordinary feeling of helplessness, and it somehow overshadows the elemental horror on the ground because the debate over what actually happened there yesterday illuminates for you and I where America also is as a society. 300 dead at a hospital in Gaza, or 500, or 1,000. And we know this much and only this much. Whoever made it happen not only committed a war crime, but created an alternative world in which they did not do it. They are the victims of it. And both sides, the actual perpetrators and the actual victims, have convinced their own supporters that they are being lied about. Each has video. Each has witnesses. 
Each has evidence, and one side has manufactured all of it and slandered the other and killed truth as surely as it killed the people at the hospital. And thus, the real truth here. There are human beings at a place dedicated to saving human beings, dead because of hatred and dogma and religion and political ambition and institutionalized lying, that real truth is secondary to not merely the fog of war, but to the deliberate fog of war. And the truth that for nearly everyone interpreting this horror, what you think happened still depends on which side you think is right. Thus, reality becomes a litmus test, not of a series of facts, not of a bunch of evidence. It becomes a litmus test of your political correctness within your own world or your region or your religion or your group. And so we are left not only with this nightmare, but the realization that the zenith of the governmental lie, the zenith so far, is merely a more physical, more tangible version of the destabilization of reality that has been poisoning this country for 40 years. That is the new essence of one of our two leading political parties that is being exploited at this moment by its leading candidate for the presidential nomination. In the desperation and the horror in Gaza City, we can, for a moment, step away from ourselves and see our crisis from a detached point of view. Whatever you and I know to be true about January 6th, about Trump, about Russian election interference. Many of our neighbors just as assuredly know to be true that Trump won, that he is being persecuted, that January 6th was a false flag, and then come the splinter groups with secondary and tertiary versions of the disease who believe things like Pizzagate or believe in herds of body doubles or of former leaders coming back from the dead for no apparent reason other than to change their political affiliations. I always think at times like these of two of the nightmares within the nightmare of our invasion of Iraq 20 years ago when our government did what either Hamas or Israel is doing right now. It used all of its influence to sell its own people a heinous lie about a connection to 9-11 in order to get them to support, in some cases enact, further violence in the form of war. And as the madness of the culture of Iraq became front of mind here 20 years ago, we discovered that some huge percentage of Iraqis believed that Saddam Hussein owned and wore or had had implanted under the skin in one arm a magic stone that protected him from death. Or maybe they didn't believe that and we were just being told that. Would Hamas have done that to its own people yesterday? Given the juxtaposition of weapons of war and a densely packed urban population, unintentionally, certainly yes. Anybody can harm their own side by accident in any conflict. Deliberately? The Israelis claim they have a list as long as your arm of Hamas sacrificing its own people deliberately. Could Israel have done this? Again, unintentionally? A target missed? Easily. Surgical airstrikes are fiction. Could Israel have done this deliberately? 
At least 21 emergency hospitals and a medical college were bombed. And in one group of 298 medical doctors, 270 of them were killed or maimed in the bombings. This was in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We did that for reasons we could defend then and we still defend now. We defend mostly by the magic wand of a simple assertion that was to be met with the same kind of unquestioning belief playing out in Gaza today on both sides. Well, we, we had to. We were defending ourselves. Which is what the Japanese originally believed just as fervently and just as religiously. The irony is that the wired world, even in the Gaza Strip, is so inescapable that we will probably be able to figure out maybe in hours, days, maybe in a year, who committed this and then lied about it. There will be time-stamped satellite imagery of rockets being launched or not being launched. There will be video of missiles leaving the ground or leaving an airplane, but not both. The revelations will not convince the ones who want to believe, even if what they believe is proved to be a lie, just as no revelation will convince the ones who want to believe in this country. I don't know how we fix this. I don't know how we fix this because now it is also being wrapped up in religion, which is itself a fantasy. And, and don't start. Religion is a fantasy not because of the faith nor the spirituality. Those are truly intangible things about which every human on this planet could believe something different and we could all still live together in peace and probably more productively than we do now, provided that we all agreed not to try to convince anybody else that their belief in the same intangible things is provably wrong compared to our own. The faith is not the added problem here. It's the fact that you can stuff any prerequisites and hatreds and prophecies and magic stones and catchphrases like Jesus sent Trump into your religion and pretend that the result is sacrosanct. That's the magnifying problem. We will figure out the Gaza hospital in all probability. How we will figure out the mutually exclusive beliefs abroad in our land, which will, in large part, decide the future of representative government in our land. How we will figure that out, I don't have any idea. By the way, on the third big news story of the day, it is of some small comfort, I suppose, some small victory for reality over brainless belief in a reality that may or may not be real, that when Jim Jordan lost, his response this time was not that they should go and storm the Capitol and overturn the election. Can't imagine how Jim Jordan didn't get elected speaker when idiots like Elise Stefanik got up and said this and were stupid enough to think this was going to help him. Jim is the voice of the American people who have felt voiceless for far too long. Whether on the wrestling mat or in the committee room, Jim Jordan is strategic, scrappy, tough and principled. Wrestling mat, you say? 
Well, Elise Stefanik is the child of the biggest wholesale plywood distributors in the entire Schenectady Watervliet Metroplex. The name Stefanik means plywood. Also of interest here, I'll circle back to the Middle East and unhappily I will have to invoke my alma mater, where a professor has said something so cold so startling, so inhuman that it does not matter whether you support Israel or Hamas, you will be offended to the depths of your soul, and this professor should lose his job. That's next. This is Countdown. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up, picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all, but here's a preview of this week's episode. Nothing to do with anyone personally. But Creighton is the team every year that the nerds, you know, the basketball nerds, are like, you know, it's really good. Creighton, you don't watch Creighton. They play. And I'm like, I don't want to watch Creighton because I agree with Shannon the dude today. Creighton's never going to win anything. Stop talking to me about Creighton. They're not never the, going to win. Not the Big East tournament? They're, well, I mean, they could maybe they win the Big East tournament, but it'll only be luck. But, like, they're always like, you know, a sleeper team. That cool. Like that guy who I told you had eight title teams. One of his title teams was Creighton. is not winning the national championship. It's yeah, I don't not, have him doing that. that. Like, that's why do we all have to act like Creighton is a, is a, is a good team? Creighton's like the band they all say you should know if you really knew bands. <laughs> and then they're never at any of those. And then they're never, yeah, exactly. And it comes time for the Grammys, and they lose out to, like, you know, Lil Durk. And you're like, see, I knew Lil Durk was better. Why are you, t- why are you telling me? See the whole time. <laughs> and this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or... Check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Still ahead on an all-new edition of Countdown, October 15th, 1969. 
Before the exact anniversary of that date slides too far into the distance, let me tell you about that day. My first sort of adult suit. My dad and I dodging the moratorium day protesters in the Times Square subway station. And the first World Series game I ever got to go to. The first item I crossed off my bucket list. I was 10. And it was 30 years before anybody called it a bucket list. Things I promise not to tell coming up. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The Bronze, the British Conservative Party, now celebrating nearly one whole year without having thrown out its own prime minister out of office and now being able to claim it's only had five different prime ministers in the last seven years. The party has, in essence, suspended and expelled Member of Parliament Peter Bone. Just a year ago, they made Peter Bone Deputy Leader of the House. Seven years after Peter Bone was accused of bullying a female staffer and exposing his genitals near her face. This allegedly happened in 2012, and just as importantly, his name is Peter Bone. How in the hell do you not see this coming? The runner-up, the Washington Post. You're wondering how and why it has seemed to have fallen apart in the last few months. Here is an answer. Yesterday, the Post did one of those What to Know About Jim Jordan, the Republican House Speaker nominee deals by Marissa Ayati and Megan Vazquez. And not once in the piece does it ever mention that Jordan talked to Trump for 10 minutes the morning of January 6th and voted to not ratify and blew off the subpoena from the January 6th committee, left all those little details out. It mentions that Trump gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, though. But the winner, Professor Russell Rickford of the History Department at my alma mater, Cornell University. And we're going to kill the music for this because his words have now been condemned by the university's president and many other aspects of Cornell, but it's not enough. On the 15th, Professor Rickford told a crowd on the Cornell campus that while he abhorred violence and they abhorred violence, the Hamas attack on Israel was, quote, exhilarating, unquote, and, quote, energizing, unquote, and he personally was exhilarated. I cannot imagine what is wrong with Russell Rickford. This transcends the actual attack. It transcends the war. It transcends the Israeli response. It transcends what happened before and what has happened since. It transcends who you think is right and who you think is wrong. Russell Rickford is wrong. To respond to the Hamas terrorism, to respond to perhaps to the hundreds of the dead at the hospital in Gaza yesterday by claiming to be exhilarated, to be exhilarated by mass death is to lack not just intelligence, but humanity. I'm not one of those dewy-eyed sing-the-song alumni. I went to the homecoming once. It was, in fact, to cover a pretty good football game that year, and the year was 1979. But neither have I ever before been ashamed of my alma mater. I am now Professor Rickford has no place there, not because of who he supports in this, nor who he condemns in this, but because he could be exhilarated by mass death. Russell Rickford, get him the hell out of Cornell. Today's worst person in the world.
Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrified horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Flashback to this the other night as I switched away from the baseball playoffs and I wondered where the teams with the top records had gone and what the point of the regular season and the playoffs and the World Series is. And I flashed back to a time when you didn't have to ask that question or any variant of it. It was the World Series and everything else stopped for it in the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of the week. Even though by then football was already the most popular sport, there was nothing football or any other sport or anything else in American culture had to offer that was comparable to the World Series. The number one story on the countdown now, and it's my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. I was 10 years old, and I'm not sure that this was the last week that baseball was more important than nearly everything else in this country. But if not, the chronology is pretty close. By legend in my hometown, Miss Barton had been standing on Farragut Parkway when they decided to put the school there in 1905, so they just built it around her. In fact, she had only been at the head of her homeroom since 1942, but for us seventh graders of the year 1969, 
The year 1942 might as well have been a date from the reign of Julius Caesar. Miss Barton was friendly, but formidable, and what, if any, connection she had to the world outside school eluded us. In retrospect, it took a good deal of courage for me to have handed her the note my mother had scribbled, asking her permission for me to miss school on October 15, 1969. She read it, and she looked up at me with unalloyed shock, and I knew my plans were doomed. And then she smiled broadly and warmly. It was not the last time any of us saw it, but it probably was the first time we had seen her smile. You're going to the World Series? Have you got an extra ticket? They were all like that. Mr. Modelinski, the science teacher who looked like nothing less than a proto-Nathan Lane, had not only accepted my carrying a transistor radio and an earphone into class, but he had periodically called on me during science class for the score. Mr. Bubb, the hard-assed phys ed teacher who once fended off 27 kids who tried to force him into the showers on the last day of school, suggested that when I went to Game 4, I should bring a movie camera with me and we could watch the highlights instead of Jim whenever the film got back from the developers. The social studies teacher, my favorite, Mrs. Rice, the first love of my life, outdid them all. She moved my chair up next to the blackboard and turned a corner of that blackboard into a makeshift scoreboard. Every half inning, and in those days you could cram a lot of half innings into your average seventh grade social studies class, not just like one or two half innings, I would add a digit to the line score. Baltimore, 0-0-3. Mets, 0-0-0. My dad got somewhere two tickets for game four. It turned out to be the Tom Seaver game. It ended in J.C. Martin's bunt thrown away down the first baseline by relief pitcher Pete Rickard of Baltimore with pinch runner Rod Gaspar of the Mets scoring the winning run in the 10th. I got to know all those guys. I sent Rod Gaspar some previously unseen photos of him crossing the plate. He sent one back autographed, inscribed, Keith, thanks for attending Game 4 of the 1969 World Series. Please drive home safely. My dad and I, in fact, took the train in from Westchester. I think we went first, at his insistence, to Barney's, which was then exclusively a men's clothing store in Union Square. That's where I got my first adult-style suit with a tailor and everything. And then up to Times Square to change trains, where we were nearly run over by the Moratorium Day protesters. That was Moratorium Day, the first big nationwide protest against the Vietnam War, October 15, 1969. We changed trains and then out to Shea Stadium by the number seven. The seats on that perfect crystal day were in distant left field, but I had brought my binoculars, really my dad's, and they brought me into the game. I could see the commissioner of baseball clearly and Stan Musial sitting next to him and sitting next to the Mets' dugout. And I could see the sweat on Tom Seaver's face as he delivered strike after strike. And the emotion I had when I got home that night, a temporary Mets fan because the Orioles always beat up my Yankees, that emotion was simple. Whatever else would happen in my life, I had done it. I had been to a World Series game. 
I was the envy of my classmates for months. The previous school year, they had herded us all into the vast cobwebby auditorium at the top of the school to watch Richard Nixon's first inauguration. Several times they had done the same thing for Gemini and Apollo space launches, but those had tangible, albeit to us vague, connections to, you know, actual schoolwork. The World Series, however, was apparently more important than schoolwork. It was more important than school. I don't remember anything else that adults would admit was more important than school. All these years later, and hearing those words, world and series, still sends a chill through me as reflexively as the loudest Pavlovian bell. I could not have known then. I was part of the last generation to be so indoctrinated. I assumed it had always been that way, and it always would be. And it no longer is. The 2022 World Series was the third worst rated in television history. Not quite as bad as 2021, which itself was not quite as bad as 2020. There's a myriad of causes. I have about... 517 more television and streaming channels to choose from than I did in October 1969. I mean, we didn't even have the color TV yet in October 1969, at least not in our house. I have at least five times more TV channels than I did in October 2001. And similarly, baseball no longer dwarfs the sports landscape, even just for the World Series. The denationalizing of baseball was symbolized by the presence of two geographically homogenous teams, formerly a boon to ratings, now a curse. This was the 2000 World Series, the Mets and the Yankees, the dream of every New York sports fan. And nobody cared outside of New York. The beginning of the end. Yet the underlying cost of baseball's malaise is that, like me, the owners just assumed it would always be the way it was in 1969. I had an excuse for believing that. I was 10. Their excuse, that mentally they're all 10, is insufficient. All but a few of the owners have failed to understand television in any way other than as a revenue source. They have never recognized its function as merchandising, even as a mechanism for proselytizing. They didn't know about Miss Barton and Mr. Modolinsky and Mrs. Rice, and they did not care about them. They didn't know about the kids with their cheesy white plastic earplugs and their scratchy transistor radios. They didn't cultivate the tradition they had been given by their forebearers in the first half of the 20th century. They let the World Series become less important than schools and less important than the NBA and less important than Taylor Swift. That's what they needed. They needed to get Taylor Swift to go with Travis Kelsey to that playoff game. It takes a certain foresight to say to a television executive, no, we can't play the whole World Series at night because the kids won't be able to watch. We can't bend to society and prime time and the other sports and demographics because to do that is to lessen the obligation to watch the World Series. We have to play some day games. Here's some of the money back. It would take a certain foresight and reproductive organs the size of, I don't know, fill in the analogy yourself. As evidenced by, well, everything, baseball owners don't have them or the foresight to plan 
for the 12th inning of a game, let alone 12 years from now. They did not write off the few million less NBC would have paid them as seed money for this. Instead, it's the World Series that has gone to seed, sometimes being reduced to being the symbolic filler between Fox's next two promos for this year's implausible sitcom. As I've discussed here previously, baseball's owners never noticed that the separation and isolation of the two leagues had assured that while the audience might be divided among the fans of 16, then 20, then 24, then 26 different teams, it also meant that nearly all of them also divided into two groups, American League fans and National League fans. So that even if their, quote, own team, unquote, was not in the World Series, they still had a rooting interest in the World Series and a reason to watch to see their league win or, as in my case, as an American League fan when I was 10 years old, to see their league lose because it was the Baltimore Orioles and they beat the crap out of my Yankees. I was not rooting for the Mets in the 1969 World Series. I was rooting against the hated Baltimore Orioles. TV usually takes the sole blame when this subject is introduced, but I know from my own experience when the executives who make the nuts and bolts decisions about televising baseball, seeing them actually do it, that they have done everything but beg the owners to return daylight to the series. And not just when the games have to start at 5 p.m. Pacific for the sake of the East Coast audience. One of my bosses... Dick Ebersol, the head of NBC Sports, sat there rejiggering the first pitch times for one series. No, no. Tell Buddy he, he has to start Wednesday at 8.37, not 8.07. He knows that. We've got a sitcom premiering on Wednesday. He told me about offering to split the difference in the revenue lost because of a late afternoon start on a Saturday. I told Buddy, think of the future. He kept saying, think of the money. It isn't just the sizzle, of course. There are now severe problems with the steak as well. In Bob Costas' memorable phrase, as my friend put it, the wild card has indeed turned the series into the MLB finals. The viewers were way ahead of the cognoscenti on this celebration of mediocrity. Amid all the explanations for the ever-plummeting ratings, the simplest one inevitably gets bypassed. If you're scoring at home, or even if you're just by yourself, this just isn't very good baseball played by not really that good baseball teams. 500-foot homers and no-hitters with multiple pitchers in them and 17 strikeout games, they are impressive, but if they happen every night, they take on the falsity of the plot twists in pro wrestling. And in a sports world full to overflowing with last-second touchdowns and buzzer beaters from the popcorn stand, all offense all the time is no longer enough to hide the fact that to be watchable, baseball has to be a balance of hitting and pitching. In one year, the number of World Series starting pitchers who lasted seven innings or more dropped from nine to none. One day, all the runs in the world. Next day, a no-hitter. Same two teams, same two lineups. In the old days, the pretenders, one-dimensional teams like last year's Phillies, were eliminated in the slow but fair crucible of the regular season. If the best team in baseball occasionally had a bad week and undeservedly lost the World Series, that merely served to create endless fodder for the off-season, something for people to talk about until March. Now, the candidates for best team 
In 2022, that was the Braves, the Dodgers, even the Mets. They can be eliminated almost by chance at two levels, even before they stagger into a sometimes anticlimactic World Series. There are now two nightmare scenarios for the television ratings. If they had continued to decline at the rate they did in the 10 years after 1991, ratings for the World Series of 2025 would be about a tenth of what they were in 1991. The collapse slowed, however. Great news. The 2022 ratings were one quarter what they had been in 1991. That they weren't one tenth is the, the good news. It is no coincidence that the three worst-rated World Series of all times have all occurred since 2020. The regular season has already been neutered. Even the teams given new free stadiums are beginning to fail. The owners know this, and they float an obvious solution. They added more wildcard teams. Throughout the 1880s, the nascent World Series, it was called the World's Championship Series, it was the World Series, was mismanaged completely from an instant attention grabber in 1884 where the winners of the American Association and the National League said, hey, we should have a series to determine which of us is best. From that explosive Big Bang birth, it was turned into an endless traveling freak show by 1887. In 1887, they played best eight out of 15 and they kept playing it in different cities it wasn't just the two cities of the two teams in it detroit and st louis the 1887 world series was played in 10 different cities and the denouement of labor wars and overexpansion came in 1890 the 1890 world series pitted the Louisville Cyclones, who had risen from worst to first in the American Association, which was a major league, against the Brooklyn Bridegrooms, who had won the American Association pennant the year before 1889, and then the franchise just jumped into the National League for 1890 and won that pennant. There were storylines of plenty, but so full of rancor and devoid of talent was the 1890 World Series that even though the host Brooklyn Bridegrooms entered Game 7, leading Louisville three games to two, Game 3 had been a tie, they needed just two more wins for the title, the crowd, the crowd for that game, Game 7 of the World Series in Brooklyn, 300 fans. Louisville then tied the series in that game, three wins apiece and a tie, and they would need a decisive eighth game and the rest of the series, and they never played it. They abandoned the World Series, tied three and three and one. Quote, there is scarcely enough interest in the series, noted a writer for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, to induce the people to read the scores. The most frightening part about that quote, that's from 1890. I felt that way the last three Octobers during the World Series. The world has made itself over a thousand times since that sobering revolt by the board against the boring. Baseball's resiliency reminds us that the World Series broadcast might still inspire another generation wearing not transistor earplugs, but buds hooked up to a live stream. 
Or, like that unhappy 1890 classic, the whole thing could wind up getting canceled. And this time, it'll be canceled by TV executives. done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Olbermann Broadcasting Empire in New York. The music you heard was, for the most part, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Brian Ray handled the guitars, bass, and drums. John Philip Chanel did the orchestration and keyboards, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven music, was arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is courtesy of ESPN Inc., and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever, and our announcer today was my friend Stevie Van Zant. Everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 1016th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <laughs> 